Astronomy 162, 2006, January 18th. Lecture is Lecture 12 on How Long Can the Sun Shine? It will begin in just a moment. Right, okay. Now, we're faced with what seems at the outset an almost hopeless and daunting task. Our knowledge of stars from their observed properties is all from the outside. And we only know stars literally skin deep. If you look at the outer atmosphere of the star that's responsible for the absorption line spectrum that tells us its temperature, and you look at the photosphere, which gives us its radius and its luminosity, those only constitute one part in one ten billionth the mass of the sun, for example. So other than a few round number estimates like, well, I can compute the mean density by taking its mass and dividing by the enclosed volume, even that is just an average. It kind of tells me if it's on average high density or on average really light and fluffy. But it doesn't tell me the details of the interior. So how is it that we're going to get away with this problem of saying, I know what's going on deep in the interior of the sun? Well, part of what we saw last time is I can apply the laws of physics. I know how gases behave, and I know how gravity behaves. And so I can use that to predict what the interior of the sun should be like, or the stars like that. And I predict the interior is very hot. Today we're going to look at another way of looking at an external property of a star and seeing what it can tell us about internal processes that are invisible to our direct vision, but in which we can see the consequences of those processes going on. And today's lecture is to ask and answer a simple question, how long can the sun shine? What is it that keeps the sun shining for long periods of time? So the key ideas of today are pretty much as follows. The first is an important fact, and it's one of those wonderful trivia questions, but actually a highly important one. Stars shine because they are hot. Not because of nuclear reactions, not because of nuclear fusion. They shine because they are hot. Nuclear fusion only plays a secondary role. The problem is not so much providing energy, but that they have, they're hot. They have to stay hot for a long period of time. Because if you're shining, you're losing energy. So the question of nuclear power comes down to what is it that could keep a star hot and for how long can it sustain it? That's the real question that's going to turn out to be answered today. There's a couple of different ways in which stars get hot. One of these is called the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. It's where you actually derive energy. You get energy to heat gas from gravitational contraction. You tap gravitational binding energy. This is not something that works in the sun right now in the present, but we're going to see later on in studying other types of stars that the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism does play a role in other kinds of stars and at different parts in a star's life. So we'll introduce it today in its original context to try to explain the sun, but keep in mind that we're going to see this again and again when we talk about stellar structure and evolution. The second way that a star can get energy to keep itself hot is nuclear fusion energy. This is energy that's derived by taking four hydrogen atoms and fusing them to form a single nucleus of helium and liberating in the process of that nuclear binding energy. In particular, we're going to introduce the specific mechanism used by the sun, the so-called proton-proton nuclear reaction chain. It doesn't all happen at once. It happens as a nuclear reaction network. This will be your first introduction to nuclear power in stars, which is, turns out, as we'll see today, is the right answer for where stars get most of their heat for most of their life. But there are consequences about how these mechanisms work that ultimately will lead to us learning something about what we should expect for how stars should evolve. So, let's begin. 
We're going to answer one question. Why do stars shine? The answer is stars shine because they are hot. The surface of the sun, the surface of any star, the photosphere as we call it, has a certain temperature. That radiates an amount of power proportional to the temperature of the fourth power following the Stefan-Boltzmann law. The size of the star, its radius, gives you the total surface area of that photosphere, and the product of the surface area, 4 pi r squared, times the power per unit area, sigma t to the fourth, gives you the total luminosity. So it emits light. It's radiating away light. What is light? Light are little particle, little massless particles that carry energy. So if a star is shining into the cold darkness of space, it is losing energy at a rate proportional to exactly its luminosity. So the way you can look at this is that the fact that a star is hot and space is cold and empty means that the star is going to leak internal energy out into surrounding space. And it does so by shining, by emitting photons. The measurement of the rate of energy loss is the luminosity. So now we've taken this quantity luminosity that we've seen before in the last few weeks, and I'm going to recast it a little bit. It really measures the rate at which a star loses internal energy to producing photons, which take off out of its photosphere and shine into space. So this rate of energy per second tells me how fast the star is losing internal energy. Now, if something is losing internal energy, that means it's going to start cooling off because its internal energy is measured by the temperature of the star. So if a star is shining, it's losing energy. If there's no source of energy to make up for that loss, it's going to start cooling off. Just like if you put a, a, imagine putting a cannonball into a forge. As long as the forge is running and you're continually pumping heat into that cannonball, it will stay hot. What happens the minute you reach in with a pair of tongs and pull that cannonball out of the forge and set it on, the, set it on a nice rock on the table? It no longer has a source of energy to make up for all the radiation it's trying to radiate because it's a black body. Hot solids, hot dense gases are black bodies. They try to cool because they're hotter than their surroundings. So if you're no longer pumping heat into that cannonball, the cannonball will slowly go from bright yellow to dull red to eventually cool enough that it's basically at room temperature. So the stars want to do the same thing. They're losing energy, and the only way that they can keep shining is if they have some source of energy that they can tap to make up for what they're losing every second from every square centimeter of their surface due to their luminosity. If they fail to tap any of that source of energy, they will literally cool off and fade out. So the question becomes, how, what is the source of energy that a star can tap, and how long can it tap it? How long can it sustain making up for its energy losses from its surface by some source of energy. Okay. Well, there are lots of approaches. There's actually, if you want a very good summary of today's lecture, find yourself a copy of this song on MP3 by the group They Might Be Giants. The sun, why does the sun shine? The sun is a mass of incandescent gas. Embedded within this song, which I don't fortunately have a copy of available to rip to, to uh, MP3 for you or put on the podcast, is an admirable summary of today's lecture. Today's lecture is going to concern the sun. Let's start with talking about stars. Let's start at home. Let's talk about our own star, which we know so well, the sun. So the question now comes is, the sun shines because it is hot. How long can it stay hot to continue shining at the way it is now? How long has it done it in the past and how long in the future? How long can the sun shine? To answer this question, we need to know two numbers. We need two measurements. We need to know how much internal heat there is in the sun. 
How much stuff is in there? How much energy have I pumped into the cannonball in the forge, if you will? And the second is, how fast is that heat being lost? What is the luminosity of the sun? Both of these are in principle measurable. The lifetime will turn out to be the ratio of the internal heat, how much energy you have, divided by your luminosity, the rate at which you are pumping it out as light off the photosphere, off the surface. There's lots of analogies, right? Instead of lifetime, I could say, I've got a car, and I'm going to drive it a certain distance at a certain speed. How far can I drive, or a different way of asking the question, how long can I keep driving at 60 miles an hour? So I get in my car, I fuel up the tank, I point it down I-70, I drive west towards Indianapolis. Sit there, put a brick on the accelerator, set it down at 70 miles an hour. How long can I drive? How long can I continue driving in a straight line at 70 miles an hour, ignoring any possible traffic or stops? Well, the answer will be obviously how much fuel I've got, the number of gallons in the tank of my, my little Subaru, divided by the rate at which I'm burning that gas, the miles per gallon times my speed. That tells me how many gallons per hour that I would be getting out of the car. And so you could compute by how much fuel have I got, how much source of internal energy in the car, divided by the rate at which I'm burning it up by driving down the road. I could turn that into, yeah, I could drive for eight hours before my car runs out of gas. So that's the basic question we're asking of the sun. What is the source of internal heat, internal energy? That's the fuel, if you will, the source of energy divided by the rate at which I'm burning it up. I'm consuming it and shining it away into space because I'm a big incandescent ball of gas. Well, we have to then turn to the question of what are the sources of energy that the sun has at its disposal? How can the sun get energy to make internal heat to keep itself hot to make up for all the heat being lost from its surface because it's shining? It's a big incandescent ball of gas. Well, in the 19th century, through the middle part of the 19th century, there were only two sources of energy that people really understood. Chemical energy, which is basically burning things. Burning is basically tapping the energy in atomic bonds between molecules and materials in which you break those bonds using oxygen. So oxidation, for example, burning of oil, burning of wood. You mix in a little oxygen, you give it a bit of a spark, and boom, you tap the chemical binding energy of big molecules, be they long-chain hydrocarbons like gasoline or cellulose fibers like wood, dry wood. Also, chemical explosives are a little bit more dramatic version of this. You provide a little bit of, of, of heat, you maybe have an accelerant or an oxidant mixed in with it, and all of a sudden, all the latent energy bound in together, holding the, the molecules of trinitrotoluene together, explode violently, and you tr you're actually able to derive energy, light, sound, flash, shock, from breaking a chemical bond. The other source of energy that people understood was gravitational energy. For example, water running downhill could power a mill. You could actually use the fact that water starting up high and going low will flow. And you could tap some of the flow of that falling water to make a water wheel move and power your factory or something. The other thing that's actually a source of gravitational energy was understood by Isaac Newton, and that is meteoritic impacts. A meteor is a fast-moving rock. It has energy because of its speed. As it falls down to the Earth in the gravitational field of the Earth, 
it will accelerate and give up some energy on its impact. It will heat the ground, it'll produce shocks and all that kind of stuff. It injects energy. Newton, in fact, thought that one way you could power the sun was simply meteors falling constantly into the sun. You actually can do the math and it actually provides a significant source of energy. It's a way of tapping gravitational energy, now not the fall of water, but the fall of meteors into the gravity of the sun and then giving up their energy of motion to heat the surfaces. Just like when you look at the impact site of a meteor on a solid planet, it heats and melts the surface. You've dumped energy into the surface of the moon or the earth or whatever got hit. Well, now what you do is you take your calculations of how well these particular energy sources work, how much energy capacity they have, and you divide them by your measurement of how much energy the sun is emitting, and it ran into something called the, we'll call the age crisis, part one. If you take the most powerful chemical reactions we know of, and for 19th century that might be things like the oxidation of carbon by, in burning, like burning coal. Imagine that the sun was a big ball of carbon and you were simply burning it with some mysterious supply of oxygen. How long could a mass of coal the size of the sun burn as hot as we observe to produce this luminosity? The answer is not very long. As impressive as chemical explosives may be, in a pure energy sense, they're really poopy little things. They really don't have a lot of energy. Now, you don't think that if you're standing next to one, but it really doesn't have a lot of energy. And even if you had a mass of the biggest, most efficient chemical energy source you could think of, the size of the sun, you could only provide for the sun's energy for a few thousand years. It just simply doesn't have enough energy content to make up for the prodigious amount of energy the sun is shining every second. Meteorites actually are a better source, but if you look at that, it really only can work for about a million years. It taps gravitational energy. It's a much more efficient, much deep, bigger well of energy to tap. But you really can't make it work for more than a million years. Now, why do I call this the age crisis? Because in the mid-19th century, geologists studying the, the Earth had discovered that the Earth was at least a few tens to a few hundreds of millions of years old. So you have a problem here. In fact, you lead to a logical inconsistency. You end up with the sun only being able to be sustained as a shining ball for a few thousand to a few million years using chemical or gravitation a la meteors. But the rocks told you the sun was tens of millions of years old and there was evidence of fossils in those tens of millions of year old strata. Life requires sunlight to live, so how could the earth be older than the sun? How could the earth be, be living longer and showing signs of plant life if there's no sun to shine a million years back if meteors are the answer? In other words, when you take your estimate of the age of the sun, you have to compare that to the rest of the evidence around you and say, is this long enough to explain the history of the world that I see around me? And this leads to an age crisis. How can the earth be older than the sun? What it means is you got the wrong answer. You've guessed the energy mechanism wrong. So this brings us up to the 19th century. It's pretty clear that meteors just ain't going to do it. Chemistry as well, it's just gone. It's just not actually useful. So a pair of scientists, uh, Lord Kelvin, for whom the Kelvin scale is named in England, and a man by the name of Helmholtz in Germany independently came up with considering the problem of, you know, the sun is not a solid ball of chemicals, it's a big incandescent ball of gas. And it's held up by the tug of war between pressure pushing out and gravity pulling in. And it should be maintained in a state of hydrostatic equilibrium at any instant. But let's look in more detail at what it means for a star to be in hydrostatic equilibrium. So we'll take the sun and we'll put it in hydrostatic equilibrium. 
pressure pushing out internally is exactly balanced by gravity trying to cause the entire mass of gas to contract. That's the starting point. Then the sun's surface is hot and it has a surface area and so it radiates that heat away into the cold of space as luminosity. As it radiates away its internal heat, what happens? If you reduce the internal heat, you lower your internal temperature. So the act of radiating away sunlight reduces the sun's internal temperature just a little tiny bit in exact proportion to the amount of energy that you just radiated away as sunlight. Now the sun is cooler. But remember that an ideal gas works in the direction that at a given pressure, if I lower the temperature, I lower the pressure, just like we saw yesterday with the balloon when I made it cold. The internal pressure dropped and the balloon shrank. So if I drop the internal temperature of the sun a little bit because I've lost 10 to the 26 watts of power off the surface, the sun's going to cool slightly. If it cools slightly, the pressure drops. If the pressure drops, well, just like the question this morning, if you wonder how I picked it, the hydrostatic equilibrium balance is now broken, pressure is less than gravity, gravity gets the upper hand, and the sun begins to contract a little bit. The sun shrinks in response to the loss of energy which results in a loss of pressure. This gravitational comp compression, however, leads to the further compression of the interior. The other hand of the gas law is that if I compress a gas, it heats up in response. So I let the pressure off, gravity wins, causes the star to compress, but that extra compression causes the temperature to notch up a little bit. That temperature notching up increases the pressure a little bit and approximately restores the hydrostatic equilibrium in that instance. So the sun has lost a bit of energy, but it's gotten the internal energy back because of gravitational compression by tapping the gravitational binding energy that is holding the star together. The penalty is the star got a little bit smaller in response. So we've seen the beginning of a cycle. I start out in hydrostatic equilibrium, radiate away some energy, lower the pressure, shrink a bit. Shrink a bit causes the gravity to compress the star, internally heat, restoring hydrostatic equilibrium, but that equilibrium is restored at a smaller size. And then I start the cycle all over again. This mechanism of being able to tap gravitational energy is called the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. Let's see this again, because it's such an important mechanism gra uh, graphically. I start out in hydrostatic equilibrium, pressure balancing gravity, luminosity radiates away heat, so the internal energy drops, the pressure drops, and now gravity gets the upper hand. Gravity gets the upper hand, causing the star to shrink, increasing the compression, the star, in response to that increased compression, heats up in the interior. The additional compression heating causes the pressure to go up, and we restore hydrostatic equilibrium. But now, I'm smaller than I were before. Go back to the start of the cycle smaller, radiate away energy, shrink a little bit, and you keep turning the crank over and over and over again. You never sit in hydrostatic equilibrium forever and ever because the fact that you are radiating away power into space means that your equilibrium is a little bit unstable. It never is perfect and it always loses it because you lose energy but you restore it for just an instant at a smaller size. It then radiates away, shrinks to a smaller size. So I expect over time the sun should just shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink getting more and more and more and more tightly gravitational bound 
tapping that gravitational binding energy, just like water falling down a waterfall, turning that into heat, and then radiating it away into space, and shrinking so that the pace of compressional heating just keeps pace with the rate at which the luminosity is radiating away sunlight. So I match my energy needs by contracting enough to make up the difference just enough. Sort of a Goldilocks kind of situation. You don't make up too much heat, because if you make up too much heat, the pressure will overdo and push you back out. If you don't make up enough, you'll lose even more and shrink even more. So you sort of get into the sort of Goldilocks runaway, but you never win because you're always continually shrinking in size. That's a great mechanism. It's a very powerful mechanism, and it's expected to work within stars. But let's look at the details. The age crisis, part two. Kelvin put together his estimates of how long the sun should be able to shine via the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism, and you get a number more like 30 million years. That's a pretty good number. The problem is, by the 1890s, when Kelvin had done this particular calculation, geologists started coming to the conclusion that the Earth must be at least 2 billion years old, and in fact, in the later decades, when radioactivity was discovered and people began to understand how radioactivity was a radio clock, for the purposes of dating the Earth, they found out the, sun, the Earth today, we know, is about 4.6 plus or minus 0.1 billion years old. We have another age crisis. The sun cannot shine as long as the Earth has been around geologically. Now, there's lots of ways to respond to this. Kelvin responded by, he was kind of a cranky old bastard. He basically said that geologists had to be wrong. In fact, Kelvin was an advocate for a young Earth for a long time. The problem was he was in complete conflict with geology of his day. Nature, on the other hand, came in to weigh in and said, no, Kelvin is wrong because there's additional physics that Mr. Kelvin doesn't know. And that is that there is another source of energy that a star could potentially tap even more powerful than gravitational binding energy because Lord Kelvin knew a great many things about hydrodynamics, but he knew nothing about the structure of the atom. In fact, the new physics was just being discovered just about the time that Kelvin made his calculation. The, the high points in this discovery is in 1896, Röntgen and the Becquerels dis in independently discovered the effect of radioactivity, a tremendous source of power coming out of little teeny tiny samples of radioactive materials like uranium and radium, which is contained in bits of rock. By 1905, Albert Einstein, in that miraculous year which we celebrated the centenary of last year, demonstrated that energy and mass are actually equivalent related through the most famous equation of all time, E equals mc squared. That says if I could take a certain bit of matter and convert it purely into energy, I can get a prodigious amount of energy out of it through the E equals mc squared formula, showing that locked away in the nature of matter is an incredible amount of energy, even in a tiny, tiny amount, as we'll see. By the 1920s, a British scientist by the name of Ed Arthur Eddington noted that if you take four protons, the nuclei of hydrogen, and you put them together, they have more mass than the nucleus of helium, which is two protons plus two neutrons. So if you tried to build helium by fusing together four protons to make that helium, the helium nucleus is lighter. It's only by a tiny amount, 0.7%. That's not much, but you can't ignore it. If you take that 0.7% of mass, multiply by C squared a la Einstein, you find that the amount of energy that you could create by taking that 0.7% of the mass and converting it into pure energy is enormous. So large 
that it could explain the power of the sun. Let's see how that works. We're going to take one gram, so I got a bottle, a gas jar of one gram of hydrogen. And through some means, I'm going to fuse all of the hydrogen into helium. If I turned every four protons into a helium nucleus through some means, and we'll see that means in just a second, I would end up with 0.993 grams of helium. Because the difference in, in weight, if you will, between four protons and a helium nucleus is 0.7%. So I lose 0.007 grams. But that leftover 0.007 grams is converted into energy. Einstein told us energy was equivalent to mass, E equals mc squared. If I punch in 0.007 grams and multiply by the speed of light squared, I get 6.3 times 10 to the 18 ergs. Now let's say I do this in one second. How much power is that? That's enough energy to lift 64,000 tons of rock one kilometer in the sky. That's one gram of hydrogen. My mouse pointer weighs 100 grams. If I converted all the hydrogen and the plastic in this thing to pure energy, not pure energy, but simply only converted 0.7% of the hydrogen into helium in here, I would obliterate Franklin County. That's what a hydrogen bomb is. There's a tremendous amount of power locked away in the atomic nucleus. So how do we get at that power? How do we do that trick? How do we do the conversion? It comes down to this question. How do you take four protons and turn them into a helium. A helium contains two protons plus two neutrons. So how do I make two of those protons turn into a neutron? There's a lot of issues involved. It's not a simple thing of just putting four, I can't put four protons in a bottle and kind of shake them a little bit and hope they'll just magically flash into helium. If it did that, well, cripes, we'd all have Mr. Fusion connected to our house and we wouldn't have to pay the electric bill. The issue is this, it's actually kind of hard to do. First of all, I have to take four protons and get them together. The chances that four protons at random will collide all at exactly the same instance is just astronomically unlikely. Furthermore, two of those protons have got to turn into neutrons because a helium is two protons plus two neutrons. So two of the protons have got to do a little presto changeo act in there to turn into neutrons. It also is going to turn out to have to be really hot because two protons have a positive charge. Like charges repel. The electromagnetic force is 10 to the 40 times stronger than gravity. It's a huge force between charges. So if I want to shove two protons together, I don't kind of just grab them at arm's length and kind of put them together down here. I've got to have them moving so fast that before they feel the electrical resistance, they come into contact. How fast? The temperature has to be the equivalent of greater than 10 million degrees Kelvin. At 10 million degrees Kelvin, the atoms are moving so fast that you can actually have two protons collide. Any slower, they feel each other's electric fields and are deflected long before they get close enough to do anything crazy like a nuclear reaction. So in order to fuse, you gotta get them together. To get them together, you gotta throw them real fast at each other. And throwing things real fast means you gotta make it real, real hot, 10 million degrees Kelvin. That's kinda hard to do in a jar in the laboratory, which is a good thing. So how do we do it in the sun? Well, I'm going to jump ahead to the answer. We do it in a three-step fusion process. You're not going to do this all in one step. The first step is you take two protons at temperatures above 10 million degrees and you smash them together. They f one of those protons turns into a neutron, emitting, forming a proton plus a neutron gives you a deuterium, an isotope of hydrogen. 
the fact that I've got to get rid of one of my positive charge in the proton to make a neutron gives me a positron and a little thing called a neutrino. I do that once and I get a deuterium out. So I've taken one proton and turned it into a neutron, so I've affected one of those changes, and then I do it twice. So now I come out of this process having turned four protons into two deuteriums, proton plus a neutron, a couple of neutrinos, and a couple of positrons. I then have this deuteron hanging around, this deuterium nucleus, and a proton, there's lots and lots of protons running around real hot, also smashes into it. It's moving so fast that it can overcome the electric repulsion of the two protons involved. One of those protons combines. I now have a nucleus with two protons. Two protons says helium plus one neutron. That's helium three. Now you know why we talked about isotopes first week. But in doing that, I have to give up a little excess energy because the mass of a deuteron plus a proton is greater than the mass of a three helium. So I emit a photon. A particle of pure energy. Okay, I got another deuteron. I do that twice. Then I have two helium-3 nuclei running around. They're big, they're fat, but they got a positive charge, but it's moving enough that you smash them together. And now when they hit, two of the neutrons stay in the nucleus. There's one neutron for each of these guys, plus two protons for each. It forms a helium-4 and spits out the two extra protons back into the soup of protons. So I have going into this one, two, three, four protons, a fifth and sixth proton, which come out at the end, and I get a helium-4 at the end. All right, that was a long chain. Let's actually see this as a cartoon. I take two protons and smash them, making a deuteron, a positron, and a neutrino that take off out of the system. I hit the deuteron with a second one, I form a three helium. I then do the whole thing over again. Now I have two helium threes. I fuse them together and I get out at the end for an investment of six protons. I get two protons out, so six minus two is four, and I've converted four of these protons, which four is kind of irrelevant, into a helium four nucleus. A couple of photons, that gives me my energy some neutrinos, which also carry energy, and positrons, which are positively charged electrons. They find an electron annihilate and make even more energy. This is the chain. It's called the proton-proton chain because I rely on the fusion of proton-proton fusion. The trick is, due to a nuclear forces, one of those protons can turn semi-magically into a neutron. Actually, it's not magically. It's called the weak interaction. And the byproducts of that conversion from a proton into a neutron are a neutrino and a positron. So the bottom line, I take four protons, which are hydrogen nuclei, fuse them into a single helium nucleus plus the following reaction byproducts. The energy, which is what I wanted in the first place, two positrons, which are positive electrons, little antimatter electrons, if you will, and two neutrinos that carry off energy away from the sun. So I've generated energy. The two photons are absorbed in the sun and heat the sun. The two positrons also are absorbed in the sun and heat the sun. So this is how I turn those photons and positrons back into heat, which makes the sun get a little hotter. Now, that's a source of energy. We've got to ask the second part of the question, is this enough to do the job? Well, the fact I'm talking about it in such detail should clue you in, absolutely. The age crisis is now averted. Once it was recognized that the proton-proton fusion chain could occur in the conditions that are exist in the middle of the sun, 
we saw yesterday that the weight of all the sun's gas on its top pressing down on the middle raises the temperature of the sun on the inside to 15 million degrees Kelvin. That's more than hot enough to get above 10 million Kelvin, which is the threshold above which the proton-proton collisions can begin to occur to trigger this mechanism. If I look at the total amount of power put out by the sun, it's 4 times 10 to the 33 ergs of energy created, produced every second. That's approximately 4 times 10 to the 26 watts every, sec- watts every second of time. To make up for that energy loss, I would have to convert 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. That sounds like a huge amount of helium, 600 million tons of hydrogen. To create 600 million tons, less 0.7% into helium. That converts approximately 4 million tons of matter has been converted into pure energy, dumped into the surrounding sun, and heats it back up every second. So in the 15, 20 seconds it took me to read this slide, the sun has converted more than a billion tons of hydrogen into helium, and from that conversion produced more than 40 million tons of mass has simply vanished into the form of pure energy in the form of photons, neutrinos, and positrons. The sun, however, is pretty good for this amount of consumption. This seems huge by terrestrial scales, but remember the sun is immense. The sun has a reservoir of more than 10 to the 21 million tons of hydrogen. 10 to the 21, I don't even have a word for a number that big. That 10 to the 21 million, only 10% is down there in the inner core, where it's hotter than 10 million degrees Kelvin. And even that 10%, so I take 10% of that, I have 10 to the 20 million tons of hydrogen available for fusion. I only need to consume it only at a rate of 600 million tons per second. So, there's my fuel, 10 to the 21 million tons. My rate of consumption, 10 to the 600 million tons per second. How long can I do this? Well, I'll do the math for you. You can do it for 10 billion years. So if you divide the amount of fuel you got, the gallons, if you will, 10 to the 20 million tons, by 600 million tons per second, your consumption rate of fusion You can sustain that for approximately 10 billion years. The age crisis is now averted. We know that the the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. The Sun could sustain nuclear fusion for 10 billion years. So we're halfway through the fuel. If I could read the Sun's fuel, hydrogen fuel tank, it would be approximately on the half line right now. So we can actually live in a solar system. The Sun's got a ways to go. Of course, an interesting question becomes, what happens when that hydrogen runs out? Well, that's a different lecture for a different day. Now, how do I know if we're right? After all, these nuclear fusion reactions are going on in the deep interior. Those nuclear reaction products never make it up to the surface. I don't see the sun growing richer in helium over time because all those reactions are confined to the inner 10% of the mass of the sun in the inner 25% of its center. None of that helium that it makes is going to have any way to make it to the surface. There's no way for it to be dredged up and deposited on the surface, and I only see the thin surface of the outside. Well, what if you wanted to find out, let's say you've got a power plant. You know there's a power plant there that's producing electricity because your house is hooked up to it and your stereo is running and your lights are on. But the power plant is a black box. How would you tell what kind of power plant is it? How would you tell whether it was a hydroelectric plant, 
a coal-fired plant, an oil-fired plant, or a nuclear power plant? Anybody got any ideas? How would I tell? Yes, sir. You'd look for the byproducts. Like if it was a nuclear power plant, you'd obviously some level, see some level of radiation. If it was a coal-fired plant, you would probably see uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Exactly. You look for the smoke. You look for the exhaust. You look for the byproducts. Well, the problem with the sun is the byproduct is helium. It doesn't make it out. The positrons don't make it out either. Ah, but one product does make it out. The neutrinos make it out. The neutrinos are, if you will, the byproduct that actually forms a kind of nuclear smoke is the way I like to think of them. So where, how can we look for the neutrinos from the proton-proton fusion chain? That becomes the question. And it's a big question. What are neutrinos? What the hell are these things anyway? I've been using the word, what are they? A neutrino is a tiny subatomic particle that has no electric charge. They're very, very weakly interacting. They are near, very nearly massless. They used to be thought to be completely massless, but in fact, they're just very, very tiny mass. As a consequence, they move at very close to the speed of light. Not exactly, but just a shade under the speed of light. They're very, very low mass as a consequence. But they have an unusual property. Since they have no electric charge, they do not interact with matter like electrons and protons. They do not see the electric fields of normal matter at all. They only interact by the weak nuclear force. The weak nuclear force is the second weakest force of nature. So as a consequence, neutrinos act like the sun isn't even there. In fact, if I took a beam of neutrinos that come out of, say, a nuclear reactor, actually neutrinos are made in nuclear power plants, and I put it on nuclear power plant on one side, and I put one parsec of lead between me and the power plant, and I sent ten neutrinos into it, I'd see seven coming out the other side. Matter acts, neutrinos, the matter might not even be there. <laughs> so what this means is that if a neutrino is going to get through a parsec worth of lead, there's no way it's going to have any problems with 700,000 kilometers of gas. And the neutrinos come streaming out of the sun from the sun's core, delivering what little bits of energy carried off from the center of the sun. So the trick is detecting them. Now, wait a minute. How do we detect something that um, can pass through a parsec of lead? How do you catch such a ghostly little particle? Well, in fact, you can do that. It's really, really fearsomely hard. You need to have massive amounts of detector material. Um, you need to work deep underground to shield out all kinds of other radiation, the cosmic rays and that that's coming from space. But the bottom line is we detect neutrinos from the sun in the proportions that we expect in all experiments to date. Here's one of these experiments. It's called the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. It's a sphere full of heavy water, deuterated hydrogen water, that's buried inside of an underground mine. This looks like it's up near the surface. In fact, this is more than five miles below the ground in the Sudbury Deep Mine up in Canada. This is the out part of it. It's known as the snowball. The, the observatory is called Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, or SNO, or snow. And the detector is called the snowball. Basically, what it looks for is the very, very rare interactions between the billions of neutrinos that come blowing through the detector every second, billions upon billions of, of neutrinos, that occasionally cause a small nuclear reaction to occur that produces a little flash of light. And they're looking for one of those flashes of light a day. Just one. And yet you sit there for years and years and you count the number of flashes and you see them come from the sun. And in fact, we see the neutrinos coming with the energies required and in the types required. Now, there's some subtleties. For example, the neutrino types were a little funny for a long time. 
but we in fact can see the smoke from the nuclear fires in the center of the sun. This gives us tremendous confidence we've got it right. It isn't just simply an argument that, well, the Earth is four and a half billion years old, so I must find an energy source that can work for longer than that. I can back it up with a direct detection of the byproducts of the nuclear reaction. I can, as the gentleman said here, look for the smoke coming out of the stack. Look for the coal smoke or the radiation. So exactly the same way, I can see the power inside the sun. So this gives us confidence that we understand the power of the sun. The sun shines because it is hot. How does it stay hot? It fuses hydrogen into helium. How long can it do it? 10 billion years. And we'll see the consequences of that when it runs out in the lectures after tomorrow's exam.